One of the other rather upsetting factoids about Season 4 of e Enterprise, how was it E&D, is the fact that they slashed their budget like crazy. Now, if you remember, I mentioned they didn't quite slash the budget, but they kind of did back in Season 3. Here, no, this is a far more traditional, you get less money per episode, screw you, going down to 800000 per episode, which is less than half of what they had during Season 3. Frankly, given what they accomplished in Season 4, I am astonished they manage it under this budget, although they did have to start using literally uh, different and cheaper-to-operate equipment in order to accommodate that, uh, remove some of the editing process and some of the conversion process, which lowers the cost of each episode, which enables them to keep under budget. But yikes! It's one of the... I bring that up, though. Anybody who's seen... My TOS stuff, which I think at this point has done. I mean, I'm done with it, obviously. This is the last stuff I'm doing. But it's entirely possible. What do we got here? Nope, it's not quite done yet. We're still in Season 3 in TOS right now. It looks like Requiem from Methuselah just came out. Well, as I will talk about in... Looks like about a month. <laughs> Close to three weeks. Season 3 of TOS probably should have ended where it did. Really. The budget, the budget kept getting slashed, and they intended to keep slashing the budget. They intended to keep pulling it down and pulling it down until finally it was just going to be, you know, not worth sustaining, and then they would cancel it. Which means TOS would have gotten worse and worse and worse and worse until finally it was like, Pleh, and they were done with it. Now, Enterprise doesn't follow the same general pattern because Enterprise was actually improving in virtually every way. But the pattern, as far as the executive side of things, seems to be holding true. Worse and worse and worse budget. You notice we have less episodes than we did last season, which had less episodes than the previous season. And this season almost didn't even get finished. I'll talk about that later. But instead, you know, it ended here, and that way, you know, we don't end up getting slashed even more. Now, obviously, in an ideal world, they would have actually stabilized the budget and allowed, you know, the series to continue out its run, as was intended. But honestly, what are the odds? Anywho, there's another Kodo script, Woo and we see the opening newsreel, mostly digitized footage. What I find funny, though, is one of the things was like, that's pretty impressive, so I decided to look it up. Apparently, it's footage from the February 20th, 1939 American Party demonstration at, at uh, Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I was going to make a joke here about the American Nazi Party. But then I realized, at least at the point at which I am recording this, that there's no way I could say that without people being upset about it. So uh, all I'm going to say instead is, once again, we see how this intro song just really doesn't fit this show at all. The Nazis have taken America! Two nations together! It's been a long road! Whatever. So Vosk. Once again, Vosk smacks down the general. This time, he's still quiet. I've noticed there's a certainty to how he talks, which is interesting because he's bluffing. This is actually mentioned later and something that I kind of hinted at earlier. He just bluffs his way through almost every situation. He's uh, Later on, he's far more open and honest about the situation and how uh, he admits how, how much he mistrusts the general, general Germans and the general. And he acknowledges how precarious their situation is because it is precarious. They are in an uncertain time with uncertain tech and very limited resources, and allies who are um, the worst possible allies they could have had given the circumstances. Like, this is a bad situation for them. 
And he knows that, but that makes his, his presentation all the more interesting because he really does just have that quiet certainty about him. We'll talk more about that later. Uh, eh, let's just talk about it now. Screw it. Whatever. Because later on he mentions destiny, right? Destiny. It's implied early on that he's just a really good bluffer. And there'll be a scene where we'll talk about later. I'll actually talk about this one later where this comes up. But here, it just comes across as the idea that he actually, I mean, you can interpret this however you want. Let, let me, let me say it that way. And in fact, I would love to know your interpretation. Do you think he is just that good of a bluffer? Or do you think he really does believe in the destiny that he states and the ideals that he presents? He comes across effectively as a zealot. And well, given how quiet and soft-spoken he is, given how certain he is, and how scarily competent he is, he comes across as a rather threatening and intimidating villain, which is good, because remember, they only have two episodes to establish this guy as the villain. And yet, it is being presented as if he is a larger-scale villain than the Tutarians and the Zindi combined, which, you know, in-universe he is. But again, two episodes versus an entire season, plus one, so... You see the problem, as I talked about last time. Either way, it is possible he's just, you know, very good at... He's got a high, you know, deception score. This then leads to Alicia, who's up on the ship. And she's like, hey, so you have a spaceship and advanced technology. Can you just kill Nazis? And Arch is like, listen, I love killing Nazis. I love it so much. It's all that makes me feel alive. But we're not going to do it that way. She's like, okay. <laughs> Actually, that's not what happens at all. What happens is she's like, you just need to kill every last one of them. Wipe Berlin off the map. Just destroy them all. And I don't blame her for that. It is interesting, though, that when he just says, we're going to do that another way, she goes ahead and takes him at his word. She, I, I like that they dodge the obvious thing here. Because the obvious thing would have been, why aren't you helping? And the usual response, especially in this era of Trek, is something along the lines of blah, blah, prime directive, blah, blah. Now, yes, there are reasons why you shouldn't interfere, but you get my point. Usually, there's none of that's brought up. There's no actual debate, no actual argument. Instead, it's just, yeah, no, piece of paper, sorry. And that's the end of it. So it's nice to see that instead his action is, no, no, we're, we're going to do this another way, and she just accepts him as word, and we just kind of bypass that whole argument. It was nice. This is when Vosk admits the precariousness of their situation, and we find out that the timeline was changed because someone went back to assassinate Lenin in, in uh, 1916. Um, one of the most talked about things in, in history, certainly in hist amongst history geeks, is the what-ifs. What if Hannibal decided not to cross? What if he decided to keep going to Rome? To, to use actually a, probably a better one there. What if, you know... Um, God, I don't know. I can't, of course, I can't think of another example right now. But this, this falls squarely into that category. What if Lenin died before the, the various revolutions happened? They posit here that it would have led to Nazi takeover and supremacy, being able to focus entirely on the West. And I, I don't know. I don't actually buy that. Especially given the, the part that the Communist Party actually had in the rise of both the Fascist Party and the Nazi Party in Italy and Germany. But also, an addendum to that, I mean, Battle of Britain, you know? And the fact that they were securing so many of the resources from Russia towards the early parts of the war? I mean, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, because it's a what-if, so who knows? It's just, this is kind of a weird, specific thing to single out as the one thing that led to Nazi supremacy. 
I mean, I mean, I'm no stranger to this kind of thing. I've played Command and Conquer, Red Alert, to be more accurate. <laughs> and those are some awesome what-if scenarios, but that's mostly because they're cheesy and ridiculous, and I love it. This is intended to be a little bit more serious, and so I'm just staring at it going, huh. What do you think? This could be a thing. It's also, They also could have just not said it specifically, but what they do is they emphasize something that I'm going to be bringing up later. They emphasize the fact that changes to the timeline have already happened prior to the moment they were sent back into. Now, that's kind of important to th- keep in mind because you have to realize that the they, they had this whole thing in Season 3 about shockwaves and about how there's this slow-moving change through time, which I made fun of ver- vociferously because it was extremely stupid and inconsistent on how they showed it. So even if it was something I would accept as true, which I don't, there's also the fact that you know the the show itself couldn't keep its own facts straight, but here they are sent back in time, prior to a change that has already happened previous to where they show up, so that they can stop the initiator of the sequence. Now you might think, well, that's all stupid, and you'd be right. Once again, we find ourselves staring at the situation and going, "Huh? I get the general idea. It feels like what they wanted to do was to have their cake and eat it too. They wanted to change to have the alternate history." that Vosk is interfering with, and they wanted to shut down the Temporal Cold War. They wanted to be able to change timeline without changing the timeline, to put it simply. I'll cover cover that a little bit more later. It's one of the last things I'm going to discuss, because it's really, really stupid. But anyways, let's move on. This again gets to Vosk. He's really good at playing poker. You notice this? He recognizes the change to the environment almost immediately, and quickly and efficiently adapts to to, to reassess to it. It's like, oh, okay, here's your men back. I apologize. I thought you were my enemy. You're not. And he says that so calmly and quietly. I love the actor's presentation of Vosk. This leads to an odd thought. Vosk is correct here. He says that the temporal agents, they always just call them the temporal agents. They, they, they usually use that phrase to refer to Daniel's group, which is the Federation group, which blah, 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 blah. But, you know, the temporal agents have an agenda, and they absolutely go through and do actually affect and alter time. They don't just observe it, and they, they, they do follow the temporal accords. You know, I mean, I should know. I helped sign those damn things over in STO. But for all of this surface-level statements, none of it gets to the heart of it. It's it's an interesting argument because what he says is true, it's just mostly irrelevant. It's like comparing a soup to a salad. Now, I know that's a strange comparison, but my point is both are food. Both are things that are presented under certain circumstances, usually as a prelude to a dish or maybe like an appetizer kind of a thing. It's the kind of thing you could share with others. You know, there's usually salt that goes with it. And you're looking at me like, Lord, these are all surface comparisons. Bingo. Because a salad is not a soup. What Vosk wants, and he is open about this, is he wants to be able to go and use time travel normally. He wants the TOS thing, to put it bluntly. He wants just to be able to have time travel be an open thing. Anyone with a functioning brain can tell you how incredibly terrible of an idea that is. So, the idea of the Temporal Accords is something that makes a lot of sense. And you get the impression that Vosk and those like him are the ilk that led to this kind of interaction. I kind of referenced that before with the one nation's pissing off the other nation's kind of idea. So the implication is given that Vosk actually started the Temporal Cold War by virtue of being the one who would eventually start the Temporal Hot One. Anyways, he then continues to adapt his way through. Notice what he does here. 
he makes it very clear that he does not want to be their enemy. If you help me, I will help you. I, I can only do so much, but I can send you back after I change time to undo the damages to this timeline so that you can go back to your actual time. In exchange, you give me parts and supplies, which I will use in order to get back to my time and start this whole process. A fairly straight trade, which benefits both people, at least initially. He also uh, does this after a gesture of goodwill, and he insists that Archer does not have to decide immediately. All of these are brilliant moves in their own right. Oh yes, I'm, it, it shows his magnanimity. You know, by giving giving the prisoners back without any conditions, it's worth noting. All he asks in return is that he talk with him, and he he ensures that he has time to think about it. Just just you know, whatever. I'm in no rush. These are these are fascinating attempts at manipulation because you could do the exact opposite and accomplish the same general thing, but that would be a different angle, which he isn't going for. As usual, he tries to go for alliances, which makes sense since he is in such a precarious position. And when you are in a precarious position, you go for alliances. When you are in a powerful position, you don't. We see this actually later in this very episode when he is in a position to finally go ahead and uh, you know say, oh, screw this, I'm done with all this nonsense, and just shoots the general. Sorry, terminating the alliance. Which is no doubt what he would have eventually in mind for Archer and his crew. Note, by the way, well, hang on. Then we cut to Silic, who was infiltrated, and Carmine, who is actually pretty helpful. He's pretty cool, I like him. No Sopranos reference here, sorry. Silic mentions, you've changed, Captain, and Archer's like, and not all for the better. Silic has some interesting scenes here. I'll cover them in a minute. But this is cut off before we get to a scene that is surprising in its competency. What happens here is Archer is up on the crew, up on the bridge, and he insists on, you know, we're not dealing. Now, it's interesting to note that Vosk pushes him into that in this situation. Hey, this is happening. Yes, this is happening. And from this, Voss gets the vibe that Archer is now toying with him, playing for time. Voss then says, okay, well, then I demand your answer right now. Chopping it off, because he recognizes that he is now being played, and therefore is not allowing himself to be played anymore. When the answer is no, he chops off communication and he immediately fires on the Enterprise. No hesitation. It's weird to see that level of competency. It, to use a comparison, you remember when Dolem told... The insectoids, well, I'm going to threaten you then. And then took like a solid 20 seconds to finally go get the order, get the targeting, and then fire on the insectoids. This, by contrast, is fire. Very much more a menacing kind of approach. And again, shows Vosk's overall mentality and shows him as being this kind of a threat. What's also interesting is this episode does not pull the Voyager problem and... I will never stop making fun of Voyager for the fact that at one point they were threatened by a planet-bound power. You, you probably know the episode if you're thinking of, if you if you've heard of it or if you've seen it, because I will never stop making fun of it. Like I said, but in this case, they remember that the ship can just kind of go over here, so it's out of firing range. Now that limits them because it means there there's a range they cannot be in, but at least they can stop being fired on. However, we also see that those plasma cannons did a fairly large amount of damage in a fairly short period of time, probably because the Enterprise didn't have any chance to deal with that, and those are plasma cannons against a ship that doesn't have shields. Honestly, they probably got off pretty fortunate with how little damage they took there. 
So the general finally has successfully run to Daddy and gotten Daddy. Daddy, he won't he won't give me the squadron I need. Could you please make him do it for me? Don't worry, son. I got you. And so he gets shot for his efforts, <laughs> as it should be. We get a section with Silic. I mentioned him earlier. John Fleck is awesome without the makeup, by the way. Unfortunately, while this is a decent little section of characterization, and it is, it's almost entirely wasted. This is most of the characterization we've gotten for Silic for the whole show. There's really only one other episode where there was anything, and I don't remember the name of it. Um, it was r relatively early on in uh, in season two, I want to say. God, I don't remember the one. It was the one where he ended up saving the Enterprise from the from the, the energy shutoff. You remember that one? Where he was infiltrating and then, ah, oh, someone hit the valve and the ship almost blew up. That one. That's kind of the only other episode where we really had anything for Silic, in my opinion. You feel free to disagree, of course. This shows that while he's got a bit of a militant mindset and a bit of a whatever mindset, he does acknowledge that his, he and his people literally owe Daniels and the Temporal Agents for their very existence, because Vosk and his ilk are unacceptable. Silic is being kind of warp-affected here, if you're not paying attention. Because the Sulaban and his group, you know, and future guy, are being shown here to be less bad than Vosk and his group. And that it's it's being done as a way to establish Vosk. This is a good way to shorthand establish another character by using a pre-existing character to help establish the higher tier character. A typical warp effect. Sometimes this can be done well, sometimes this can be done poorly. Whether this is one or the other is up to you to decide, of course. Either way, I do love how he indicates that Vosk is just such bad news nobody deals with him. And even though he owes Daniels, they still oppose us, so they're still our enemy and that's not going to change. Silic then helps them to infiltrate. They have a really... I, I wish we'd seen more scenes. Like, there's this bit where Silic is talking with Carmine, and Carmine's like, are you... Do, do? It's basically the the straight man and the... Oh, I can't remember. There's a name for the bit where one person doesn't understand, and one person's playing it straight. And so this person, the person who's playing it straight, keeps saying uh, figures of speech or phrases. And the person who doesn't understand is like, wait, what? Why would you do that? Why would I want that? Is he threatening me? Why would he want to threaten me? Aren't we on the same side? Like, he's just so nonplussed about it. I love it. And John Fleck is kind of awesome. I remember him most, uh, well, for Silic, actually. But he also played Tybeck and Koval, two separate Romulans. He also played Abaddon over in the episode Alice, if you remember that one, back in Voyager. He's done some good stuff over the years. What amused me, though, and I didn't realize this until I was looking up some of his roles, is the fact that he's been in makeup for every single one of his roles up until this one. This is the first time he walks around without makeup. It's a pity, because he's, he's good with his face. But then again, he's good with his face with makeup on, too. He has a distinct way of speaking. He does it especially as silicone. He does this thing with his teeth. And it, it just he uses his jaw in a unique way. I like it. I mention all this stuff about John Fleck and Silic because then Silic dies. It is a shame. I kind of wish we'd used him better. He's a good actor, and he was a... I'd say he was the beginnings of an interesting antagonist. Someone who isn't truly villainous, but someone who was going to be like that kind of frenemies sort of category. And I feel like if they'd actually built him up properly and established him properly, that we could actually use him for some long-term payoff. Unfortunately, Shran... I say unfortunately. Fortunately, we do still get Shran, who fills the same general slot and is portrayed by the awesome Jeffrey Combs, so that's something. But a similar kind of a vibe. Alas, this is the last we'll see of Silic, although it could be argued that since everything gets reset button hard at the end of this episode, and I mean hard, then 
you know, Silic actually lives. He's just, we'll, we'll never see him again. Or the Sulaban, for that matter. Anyways, Vosk talks about we must perfect ourselves. Um, he t- he's, he's talked before about racial purity and the idea of using time travel to make small, careful alterations into the past to improve lives and whatnot. What I find interesting here is that this, in many ways, reminds me of the Augments and the, the superhumans, which we'll be talking about soon enough. Anyways. <laughs> There's a really great scene. It's right after Silic dies. Sadness. Silic dies, and we cut over to Tucker. He's like, all right, you're going to tell me this. Wait, wait, Captain? Is that is that actually you? Oh my God, it actually is him. Oh, I can't believe it. The building's about to blow up. Got it. And then they just leave. It's one of the best moments in the whole episode, right there. So, they can't communicate to Enterprise and Atmosphere for some stupid reason. That's why Silic dies, by the way. I, I know, I know. He says there's ionization in the atmosphere. I don't know. I don't know my physics that well, but I figure if a ship can communicate from orbit, it can communicate from atmosphere because you're already going through the... Like, the, the barrier of atmosphere is already there. It's just you're in it instead of beyond it. I don't know. Whatever. Point being, they die. Vosk is destroyed after talking about destiny. And then, no! And he smear, he, we, he warps as he's being destroyed. I actually had a thought about this. For the longest time, I assumed what was being done here is Vosk is effectively being smeared out of time. In short, he... um, You remember uh, Anorax? What uh, vessel oh back in Voyager, how it would hit something and remove it from time retroactively. I kind of always assumed that's what happens here, probably because of Voyager and because of the year of hell. And thus, if Vosk never existed, that would actually neatly explain everything that happens. No dialogue supports this. In fact, the dialogue seems, although does not conclusively, uh, to support the idea that instead what happens is they stop the beginning of the war after it started, therefore it never began. Which doesn't actually line up, especially when you consider time travel's exemption clause and the fact that time is not... <sighs> Daniels speaks in such flowery words about time, it actually irritates me a little bit. It has eddies and currents, and the timeline is resetting itself. It's almost ready. What? I, I want you to just ponder that phrase for a second. The timeline is almost ready, having reset itself. Uh, no, I'm done. I'm done. Archer, naturally, is a dick to Daniels. Can't resist being a dick one last time to Daniels. He really hates Daniels, doesn't he? I've never gotten that. Since this is the end of Daniels, by the way, we'll never see him again either. And the end of the Temporal Cold War. We're going to go and discuss both points a little bit here. Daniels was a decent enough actor, but he always came across as a little bit bland. I kind of feel like that's a little bit of the character and writing fault more than the actor's fault. After all, I've seen him do decent stuff over in, I can't remember the name of the hospital show. You probably know the one I'm talking about. Instead, what we see here is that Daniels is just kind of a GM stand-in. In almost every time he showed up, he was the GM speaking to the player. Someone who is trying to guide... It's when... It happens. It's happened to me. It's when the GM is just like, okay, I'm run out of ideas to get you onto the story path here. And they just intervene directly. It's sometimes referred to as a mouthpiece, where the GM speaks through an NPC 
more or less directly to the player. This actually happens in video games quite a lot because there's several sections where someone will just speak and it's clear that's what ha- what's happening is exposition is being dumped to the player in such a way that it doesn't really flow naturally for that character to be speaking to that other character. Instead, it's a fully out-of-character kind of a thing. That's the vibe I've always gotten from Daniels. Um, except his very first appearance, I should clarify. Sorry. Uh, this, that's the vibe I've gotten from Daniels for quite a while. And it is a shame, because just like Silic, it is a total misuse. We could have had some interesting nuance with Daniels. We could have had someone who was a firm, staunch believer in the Temporal Prime Directive, and someone who was a firm believer in the Temporal Accords, who nevertheless has to, on a daily basis, violate the, both the Temporal Prime Directive and the Temporal Accords in order to maintain them. Essentially, someone who is a, shall we say, a ratified vigilante. Someone who operates in vigilante status on behalf of the organization in order to enforce the rule. That kind of a thing, right? And maybe trying to, maybe not even going that far, maybe making it to the point, because vigilante might be pushing it too much. Maybe just making him a group that bypasses the temporal accords, that they have specter status from Mass Effect, right? And so they, the normal rules don't apply to them, so they can just operate with impunity in order to do what they deem is necessary. A very Section 31 kind of a thing, except more open and above board which could then make him question himself and his mission and how much he himself operates and interferes with the timeline based on his own personal biases, which he himself then worries about, you know, kind of humanizing him a little bit. Like, I mean, I did this to save you and your crew. Maybe I shouldn't have. You know, that might have just been my own little hero worship of the great Captain Archer speaking through there or something, right? Instead, well, there's just not a lot to go when it comes to Daniel's. And he's just there. <laughs> this also leads to the end of the Temporal Cold War. Now, Archer <laughs> Archer says something that feels, once again, like the creator speaking through the character. In reference to something I mentioned previously. I'm done with you. Take your damned Temporal Cold War and leave me and my crew alone. And indeed, it will never be brought up again. At least not that I'm aware of. I don't think New Trek has ever touched on the Temporal Cold War. And frankly, it probably never will. As we, I've said this before, and I will say this again, the Temporal Cold War was actually a fascinating concept, a topic that they could have done wonderful, amazing things with, but by its very existence, by the very structure of the type of plotline they were trying to build there, it would have to be planned out. And this is Star Trek. <laughs> Even season three, which was probably one of the most planned out seasons of, of Star Trek to date, they still didn't have everything planned out. And even season four was mostly planned out in segments rather than in one congregate whole. So, right? So you can see how, I mean, it's one of those do it right or don't do it at all situations, in my opinion. If they were going to do the Temporal Cold War, then do it. But if they couldn't do it right, they never should have started. As always, I'm curious of your thoughts on this one as well. I know that we've talked about the Temporal Cold War before, but, I mean, this is it, right? This is the end. I suppose that leaves us to uh, the end, the end of the episode. It took three years, but we have finally gotten to the point where Enterprise can begin. I'm going to go ahead and say one other thing here, because this is, for all intents and purposes, the end of Season 3. And the, and the next episode will be, in every way that matters, the beginning of Season 4. Now, Stormfront 1 and Stormfront 2 were better than I expected. I'll acquiesce in that point. While there's some pretty big logical flaws here, a lot of those are things that cropped up, not really the writer's fault, but because of the baggage they were left behind. 
And a lot of this is just, just, just go with it, just go with it, just go with it. And it's done. Oh, huge reset button. None of this ever happened. The temporal cold or never even got started. We're done. <laughs> right? Just erased from existence. Very, very back to the future. Three years. Now I, now I feel like, uh, so if you asked me, um, I don't know, about a year ago before I started the Enterprise season three stuff, I, in fact, I think I said this in the season two stuff. I remember season three quite well. And I remember season four even better. That has changed. Season three has some great moments. Don't mistake me. It, it's, it's highs are still very high, but season three was still very much a season of enterprise. It just had some actual structure to it and some core elements to it that helped elevate it. And if you're paying attention, season one and two had some similar things. I mean, there are some, some of my favorite episodes are actually still from season one and season two. It's just, you know, they're kind of dwarfed by the ones from season three and will probably be dwarfed by the ones from season four. And I bring all this up because it's just more of the same. It's Voyager again. It's season seven of TNG all over again. They've got some good ideas, but for the most part, they're just running on empty. And it shows a completely new creative staff was exactly what, what Star Trek in general needed. Now, is that a guarantee of success? Absolutely not. Because, I mean, it can be easy to look at this like it's the easy solution. Just replace the staff, have a completely new crew, completely new everything, and they'll do things and it'll be better. No. What they will do is it will be different. Now, I do still firmly stand behind the idea that they should have done this and they should have done this earlier. But it is reasonable to say that we got lucky with the team we've got for Season 4. At least, again, by memory. I haven't, I haven't gotten there with analysis mode on yet. But it is entirely possible that Season 4 could have sucked hard. Could have been just terrible. Because it's a new staff, which only means it's going to be different. After all, that's we got lucky once before with Star Trek II. You remember that? Bring in a whole new creative staff, new writers, new creators, new directors. Remove the previous people from control, and we got Wrath of Khan. We got lucky, though, because all it was was different. It was just by fortune that it was good. I still stand by the statement, though. I still think this was something that was a long time in coming, and it'll be interesting to actually go through with analysis mode to really see how it lines up, having immediately gone through Season 3, which I've been doing for the better part of the last week. <sighs> but yeah, it is time for Enterprise to actually start. I've heard that theory before, too, that Season 4 is Season 1 of Enterprise, that, that it's what Season 1 should have been. And, yeah. We'll see what we think of it. Hope you've enjoyed. As always, see you next time.